Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Last time, we discussed chapters 1 through 10 of Ray Bradbury's book, Dandelion Wine. To briefly review, three key moments. The main character of the book, the boy, Douglas Spaulding, learned what it is to be alive. He realized that he had never thought this before or thought through what it means to be alive. He never considered it. Conversely, his younger brother, Tom, learned about fear of death. Related, in a sense, to both of these is happiness. Isn't the purpose of being alive to strive to become happy? And isn't a core concern of ours death and how we understand its place in our lives and how that understanding conditions or affects our understanding of happiness? Well, we also saw then, to tie these things together last time, Leo Aufman, a sort of side character, uh, gets the idea to build a happiness machine. Chapter 11, where we will pick up this time, begins with Leo Aufman. So this is a Leo Aufman chapter, and as it was with his earlier chapters, this one is very brief. His wife reiterates that they don't need a happiness machine. The narrator indicates that Lena, his wife, uh, that her body was one that showed an outward sign of contentedness in being neither too thin nor too fat. But she was neither starving herself nor overeating as an emotional response to a lack of love. But Aufman insists that the machine will be for others and not for them. He seems to imagine some kind of Netflix machine with movies and sounds coming out of it. It would simulate human experiences. Surely happiness cannot come, come about through merely simulated experiences. Don't we crave the real thing? One other thought about, about a happiness machine is that it is born out of a desire to control the world. Our happiness, uh, probably in large measure, will depend on things that are outside of our full control. To mention just one example that's salient uh, right now, or right here uh, in the book, is if love is something that plays a part in our happiness, we know that we can't force someone to love us. There's a lot to say about this kind of thing, but all we can do is attentively care for the other person to the extent of our abilities. But sadly, this is not always enough. If love is part of a well-lived human life and part of our happiness, then how can the happiness machine supply this part of our happiness? Um, as a kind of side note on the Aufman chapters, could the Offman chapters be so short as a way to reflect his lack of thoughtfulness on the crucial questions that underlie the happiness machine project? Questions which a fuller conversation with his wife could have brought to light. Bradbury then sets Offman aside and takes us to chapter 12, which talks about, <laughs> which talks about a lawnmower um, and Douglas's grandfather. So this lawnmower chapter mirrors the beginning of the book where we saw Doug outrageously excited for the summertime and looking for its first signs. Now we see Grandpa with the same kind of enthusiastic excitement, only for him, it is the sound of lawn mowing, most of all, that signifies the arrival of summer. Grandpa immediately discovers that the joyful sound of lawn mowing threatens to be taken away from him forever. A new kind of grass has been invented and is ready to be put into practice that never grows past a certain height, and which grows so tightly together that it would never permit dandelions to go through to grow through. It is an improvement on nature. 
He offers a lecture to the young men who wanted to help him by installing the grass without asking. The benefit of such grass is clear. No time, energy, and money spent on mowing every week, and no time, energy, or effort expended removing pesky dandelions. Technology shows itself to be the master of nature in a way that is beneficial to mankind in seemingly every way. But Grandpa attempts to provide the philosophical case for why keeping lawnmowers around is a great good for human beings. Uh, Grandpa's rejection, here's an account of Grandpa's rejection of the benefits. He insists to Bill, the would-be helper, Bill, when you're my age, you'll find out it's the little savers and little things that count more than the big ones, end quote. This sentiment is consistent with what we saw on the front porch uh, when we were examining the first 10 chapters. It isn't necessarily grand or profound conversations that mean everything, but sometimes it's warm, repeated interactions. Grandpa goes on to invoke Plato and Socrates and insists that there is something genuinely philosophical about cutting the grass or about the way that one cuts the grass, about stopping to savor the small things. There's something to what he is saying, insofar as he encourages us to be more attentive to every inch of our experience, even or especially those moments which might strike us as mundane or boring. We can't just let our minds turn off while we wait for something big to come along. We, and I think especially maybe the young or myself when I was younger, crave a kind of superlative or overwhelming satisfaction that happiness is supposed to be something explosive that can only be caused by rare or not previously experienced events. Grandpa rejects this vision of happiness, and he rejects the quest of modern science to completely conquer nature. To completely conquer nature would somehow make life too easy or boring in his view. Now, we could push back a little bit against Grandpa's rejection uh, in the following way. Weren't lawnmowers themselves designed to assist in the conquest of nature, to save human beings' time? Grandpa is like the Amish in that they use some technology, but they think that there is a certain threshold at which technology no longer assists in human flourishing, but hampers it. Grandpa just wants to stop at a later point than the Amish. But once you bring a little bit of nature conquest into your life, one would need a clear account of what human flourishing consists in, and how various technological advancements threaten that flourishing. So this isn't so much of a critique of Grandpa, but maybe a spelling out of what his argument presupposes. So then, in chapter 13, we see that the happiness machine comes into being and is destroyed. Uh, Is it a coincidence that this happened in a chapter that is characterized by the unlucky number of 13? I don't know. But at any rate, we can say this. It is also the first Leo Alfman chapter that is lengthy, whereas each of his previous appearances were fleeting. Perhaps, whereas he was unthoughtful in the previous chapters, he is now compelled by his circumstances to confront uncomfortable truths that he could not previously face up to. Leo's wife, Lena, is at her wit's end. Before the machine is invented, Leo is asking her questions, and she replies with an attack on such questions. She says, Leo, do you ask what makes your heart beat at night? No. Next, you will ask, what is marriage? Who knows, Leo? Don't ask. A man who thinks like that, 
how it runs, how things work, falls off the trapeze in the circus, chokes, wondering how the muscles work in the throat. Lena advances a case against philosophy, or at least against digging into certain questions too much. She is unbothered by her ignorance of many domains of human life. She was happy before Leo began digging, and it is only after he looks into the matter and makes happiness into a question that she finds herself relentlessly unhappy. A page later, after Leo has been tinkering day and night, Lena says, man was not made to tamper with such things, end quote, further underscoring her claim that happiness should not be examined too closely. Now, if we think back to Bradbury's gentle suggestion in chapter seven, that how we treat someone is more fundamentally important than what we know, um, that our actions are more important than knowledge. We can see here a vivid example of the conflict between these two human motivations, caring for others and understanding the world. Leo's quest to understand the truth about what causes happiness leads him to treat his wife worse, making her unhappy. Knowledge in this case came at the cost of not treating his wife well. It wouldn't surprise me if Ray Bradbury ends up throwing a wrench into this argument or makes it more complicated later. But this example serves as a kind of confirmation of what was argued for in chapter 7, that action or the treatment of others should be preeminent in our lives. And I think Bradbury does end up spelling this out a lot more later, um, or the basis of this argument. But to return to the action, the happiness machine takes a toll on the entire family. Leo loses weight. Lena gains it. Saul, their son, is so obsessed with the machine that he gets up in the middle of the night to use it. Not because he is unhappy by his account, but because he wants more happiness. (laughs) Evidently, the experience within the machine is better than life itself, or at least it feels that way. As an aside, I wonder if the beverage, dandelion wine, represents a safer approximation of the happiness machine. As it was said uh, earlier in chapter two, it transports one back to a joyful past but it doesn't come at the expense of no longer wishing to be in the present. Indeed, it is the comparison between a positive, negative, and neutral states of being that allow us to understand those states at all. For example, happiness is different than boredom, but the comparison to boredom, anger, etc. helps reveal happiness as what it is. Now, Lena wishes to leave her husband, and so she begins dividing up their things. As she makes her final preparations, she finally yields to her husband's request to try the machine. She goes in, and not long after being in the machine, she begins to weep. When she exits the machine, she exclaims, quote, I never even thought of being in Paris in my life, but now you got me thinking, Paris! So suddenly I, I want to be in Paris, and I know I'm not, end quote. The machine stirs or awakens within Lena new desires that she had never felt before. Sadly, the desires are accompanied by disappointment in the form of awareness that those desires can never be satisfied. Lena had never longed for more than she could get, and so found herself content. She is now miserable with her awareness that she cannot have what she wants. She then makes an argument about comparison that we discussed above bringing out how a beautiful sunset is something we love precisely because it doesn't last very long. 
we have to go out of our way to notice it. I mean, we know that the sun sets, but we often don't make a point of really watching it start, uh, watching it from start to finish. Lena then counsels forgetting and making do for lowering expectations and just living a normal life. Leo tries out the happiness machine again, but it catches on fire. He's disappointed, but suddenly sees that it that it is his home and family that he should attend to, not a machine that simulates experiences. Or in other words, as Lena says, a machine that lies. In chapter 14, Bradbury takes us back to Doug's household. Doug's family, except for his father, because it's during the workday, takes out the rugs to beat the dust out of them. He notes that this happens twice a year, making it a rite or a ceremony. As we learn in chapters 1 through 10, Douglas is keeping a book where he talks about discoveries and revelations, and also rites and ceremonies, new things and traditional things. Uh, They warmly, the family, warmly recall different incidents from the past year that can be seen on the carpet. Quote, that's where your husband spilled that coffee. Bradbury then puts words into Tom's mouth that state one of the key intentions, I think, of the book. Quote, it's fun seeing things, end quote. The book invites us to slow down and really look and pause and feel. We usually just walk over a rug and only think about whether or not we are breaking a rule of walking on it with shoes, maybe. But the rug turns out to be a kind of record of the past under closer examination. A danger and an opportunity emerges when we look too closely at something, or read too closely, for that matter. The danger is that our vision will add something that isn't there, that we will imagine that there is more than there really is, to put it awkwardly or that there is more there than there really is. But it is also an opportunity. Tom says he can quote, that he can see, quote, 15 years of people stomping across it. I can see every shoe print, end quote. One might be able to notice that a rug is worn down and make an approximate guess about how many years it has been in use. But surely one cannot see every shoe print. In that way, Tom imagines something that isn't there, but through his imagination, he also finds a way to see the entire world through the rug. Quote, I see it all. Dire fiends, deadly sinners. There's bad weather. There's good. Picnics, banquets, strawberry festivals, end quote. In this list, he gives us three negative things and four positive things. Is that to say that human life is slightly more good than it is bad? The happiness machine is mentioned shortly after this. Alfman desired to take out all of the bad threads in life, so the only good ones remained. But we have to ask, what are the bad threads that can be taken out? What human problems can be solved, and which human problems have to be endured or managed? So now we turn to chapter 15. This is a longer chapter that is almost a self-contained short story where we meet Mrs. Bentley, an older woman who deeply wishes to hold on to the past. She does so by holding on to everything she can, like ticket stubs or combs from when she was a girl. Sadly, she could not save her husband, the person she treasured most, as the narrator puts it. One purpose of the chapter is trying to figure out what such a person really hopes for 
by saving so many things. What does she hope to gain? When we save things, like pressed leaves or a concert ticket stub, what is it that we hope for out of keeping them? Mrs. Bentley is forced to confront this question for the first time in a while by three children who, with their childish frankness or honesty, insist that Mrs. Bentley could never have been young like they are. This calls to mind Doug's earlier claim from chapter 6, that children and adults are different races, one of them born beautiful and young, the other born ugly and old. The children don't believe her, and this rankles Mrs. Helen Bentley to no end. Why is she bothered by this? She thinks of the children as fiends and thinks to herself that I do resent having my childhood taken away from me. Literally speaking, that can't be true. But what does she mean at the psychological level? She, she, she seems to think that her identity depends on having other people recognize it. In other words, she allows the words of others, in this case children, to define who she is. She's so desperate to prove to the kids that she was young once, that she collects evidence, such as a ring and a picture of herself, to prove it. Now the kids either A, don't know how cruel their words are, and so they can't be blamed as we start to think about what they're doing, or B, do know how cruel their words are, and so we should blame them for needless cruelty. I'm almost inclined to say that option A is true at the beginning, that maybe they didn't know how much they were hurting her, but the option B uh, must be the case later in the chapter. At one point, they run away with a picture of her in the comb. Huh. That seems cruel. At any rate, the kids continued to deny that Mrs. Bentley was a child, saying that she got the youthful picture of herself from elsewhere. Um, who knows where she got it from? She's at a loss for what to do. But she remembers an argument she had with her husband. He said, quote, You're always trying to be the things you were instead of the person you are tonight. End quote. By saving things, Mrs. Bentley yearned to be in the past and not in the present. She didn't want to be herself. I wonder if another purpose of the chapter is to counsel the reader against yearning for the past too much, insofar as the book reminds adults and teenagers what it is like to be younger. That one core effect of the book is to make us yearn for a beautiful past that never really existed. So yes, we should look to the past, but we have to find some way to bring the past into the present in a way that makes the present moment better. Maybe that makes us feel more alive. To not yearn to be a child again, but to hold on to the best parts of a childlike understanding of the world. For we know that dandelion wine is supposed to take you back in the calendar year, but just for a moment. So this chapter warns against the temptation to dwell too long in the past and to not take the impolite things kids say too seriously. Now, turning to chapter 16, we here have a brief chapter where Doug and Tom review their notebook on ceremonies and rites and discoveries and revelation that was first mentioned in chapter 6. Viewing this chapter in the light of the last one, we could ask this. How does a notebook compare to saving ticket stubs as far as saving or living in the past? Is the notebook better or worse? Is it better because we take a more active role in interpreting the past? There's an argument about whether something done on June 1st, or this is in the book, uh, there's an argument about whether something done on June 1st could qualify for inclusion 
in a summertime notebook. This quietly raises the following question. When does one thing fully change into another? Do the human ways of categorizing things map onto the reality or nature of the thing being categorized? For example, if we designate one time spring and the other time summer, we are trying to say that, generally speaking, the weather is warmer during summer than it is during spring. We say more, but we at least say that. But the categories are often less helpful on the borders of things, when spring is turning into summer, for instance. Sometimes the end of spring is hotter and feels like summer. And so too can the summer begin much cooler than it will eventually become. That this is the question Bradbury wants us to consider is, I think, confirmed. And that it, in that it is raised again in the form of Tom telling Doug that old people were never children. In other words, one thing, a child, does not completely change into another, old person. They admit that one season changes into another, although the borders between them are messy. But they don't admit change in this other case uh, for growing up. So Bradbury could be asking as well, when does a child really change into an adult? What kind of experience does one need to have? What does one have to know? How reasonable does a person have to be, etc., in order to be considered an adult? We say 18 years old qualifies someone, but we know that there are some 18-year-olds who don't deserve very much responsibility, but there are some 14-year-olds who are making a lot of meals for their siblings. The border of 18 is helpful, but it fails to give us guidance in each particular case. A lesser point is that it seems funny <laughs> that Doug was obsessed with his shoes earlier in the opening chapters, and yet in his notebook, he speaks of running barefoot the very next day after buying his shoes. And we don't hear much about the shoes after the initial excitement of their acquisition wears off. Now in chapter 17, we get yet another reflection on how we ought to think about the past. We meet Colonel Freelight an old man who speaks about the past so beautifully that he's considered by the boys, Doug and his friends, Charlie and John, to be a time machine. The colonel tells three core stories which enchant the boys. The first story he tells is about a magician named Ching Ling Su. He asks somebody, the magician, to shoot him, and he intends to catch the bullet in his teeth. The magic trick goes horribly wrong and he dies. The story takes place in Boston, Massachusetts in 1910. The second story is given much more detail than the first. The colonel is with his friend out on the plane in 1875. We don't know exactly where. He tells the story at first as if a terrific thunderstorm threatens to engulf him and his friend. But it turns out that a massive herd of buffalo who are kicking up dust are running by them. His friend tells him to shoot his gun, but the colonel interprets the buffalo as a kind of divine experience or awareness of some kind of sacred strength that should not be violated by puny human weapons. The third story he tells, uh, the boys, uh, it's a story that the boys request. They ask him about the American Civil War, which according to both Wikipedia and the History Channel website took place from 1861 to 1865. He fought in the war, the colonel that is, but he claims not to know which side he fought on. He almost speaks about the Battle of Fort Sumter, which begins the Civil War in South Carolina, but prefers to speak about the songs that the soldiers sang, which longed for peace. 
Our question then, as readers, is to ask, if Bradbury brings a storyteller on stage in his book, and he can have this storyteller tell or write any story that he wishes, why would Bradbury select these three stories? Either the combination is arbitrary or random, or is meant, or alternatively, it is meant to communicate something to us. What follows from this consideration is an account of what Bradbury aims to teach by setting these particular stories side by side. The first story takes place in Boston, a densely populated city on the East Coast. It was the capital of one of the first 13 American colonies and would be considered decidedly northern. The second story takes place on the plains. While it cannot be taken as necessarily southern, it can be taken as rural and very different from Boston. The colonel, then, has experience of two different poles or sides of the American experience. His diverse experience prepares us to understand his unwillingness or reticence to speak about which side of the Civil War he was on. By saying that he can't remember the colors of the uniforms, he prepares the boys to not take a side in the conflict. The colonel appreciates both the industrial side of America and the rural or untamed side of America. He wishes for the country to be united. He does not wish to push the boys to love either the North or the South. To feel truly energetic about supporting one side or the other, in the colonel's view, misses the fact that the war ended and that the United States ought to do everything in its power to heal geographic divisions and to treat each American as a potential friend rather than as a potential enemy. This chapter is also striking in light of the Mrs. Bentley chapter that we recently discussed. The colonel seems to live in the past, and by doing so, he seems to benefit the children who live in his town. Is he living in the past in a way that is beneficial to his life? Or could we say that he is too old to really live in the present, and so we shouldn't begrudge him telling stories before he dies? Now, in chapter 18, we see that Doug is awake after midnight and is feverishly writing in his notebook about how much gratitude he has for all of the good things in his life. The thing that fills Tom with wonder as he listens is Doug's account of Colonel Freelay from the previous chapter. Or I suppose we, we, he, Doug relates to Tom what he's been writing, and this is uh, what Tom feels wonder about. Doug expands on his account and says that as he gets older, quote, I got to travel all those ways. See what I can see. So when kids come around when you're real old, you can do for them what the colonel once did for you, end quote. He yearns to live an adventurous life or a life worth living so that, it can, so that it can become a gift for others. He needs to live well so that he has something to transmit or pass on to the next generation to inspire them in turn. Doug says of the colonel that, quote, the more he talks, the more he gets you to peering around and noticing things, end quote. In this way, Bradbury himself mirrors the colonel insofar as he assists the reader in noticing how much more there is to see, even in mundane circumstances. So it isn't just that the colonel has interesting experiences, but that he is thoughtful and perceptive when he has them. Earlier on, I suggested that Bradbury was quietly making an argument about the superiority of moral virtue or action over intellectual virtue or knowledge. Here, he brings them back together through stressing thoughtful action. Now, in chapter 19, two elderly sisters own something called the Green Machine. We hadn't met the sisters until now. 
it's difficult for me to build a picture in my mind of the machine based on what we are told of it. But it appears to be an electric car that is probably more like an electric golf cart that has a maximum speed of 15 miles per hour. The green machine has been a great good for the sisters insofar as it has permitted them to socialize in all sorts of ways around town, even though the ravages of age make it much more difficult for them to get around. Though the green machine has brought much good into their lives, today it brings them evil. Or to put it differently, the sisters have brought evil into the world through their poor use of the machine. They have run a man over with the car. And what's worse, they didn't stop to see if he was okay. They even consider the possibility that he was killed by them. This is the reason we find them in the attic of their home and why they refuse to answer the door when our protagonist, Douglas Spaulding, comes to knock. What is the purpose of this chapter? I wonder if it is designed to show us what it looks like for an old person to bring with them the bad parts of childhood into old age rather than the good parts. One of the most difficult parts of growing up, and even one of the most difficult parts of being grown up, is to genuinely take responsibility when we do something wrong. We see the sisters consistent in their attempt to evade responsibility. Uh, here are a few examples of that. First of all, they begin this chapter in the attic, hoping that nobody will find them there. Second, they then turn toward a memory of the wonderfully charming salesman who convinced them to purchase the green machine. It is certainly the case that he flatters them, as they recall, which is to say describes them as better than they are. But aren't they responsible for being vulnerable to flattery? Third, they seem shockingly unconcerned with the possibility that the man they ran over is dead. They just want to avoid the consequences that attend such a deed. They are more worried that they won't be able to drive the green machine than that they might be murderers. Now, it is possible that they don't really believe that they murdered him. Rather, they might be exaggerating to themselves that it could have been the case as a way of inflating their own self-importance. This would be unimpressive of them, but it would be better than not caring about murder. The sister's evasion of responsibility is harshly juxtaposed to Doug's insistence, shown by repeatedly knocking on the door, that he tell the sisters that everything turned out to be fine. That is to say, the man was run over, but he turned out to be just fine. It just, you know, wasn't fast enough. Nevertheless, the sisters redeem themselves somewhat by imposing on themselves the punishment that they feared, namely that they take the battery out of the green machine, rendering it inoperable. Finally, in chapter 20, uh, or finally we turn to chapter 20. Now back in chapter 18, Doug express, expressed his wish to travel while he was talking to his brother Tom. And we see in the previous chapter, and in this one, two of his modes of transportation eat the dust, the green machine and the trolley. Bradbury uses a simile about a buggy whip to describe both the trolley and to indicate a form of technology that preceded it by mentioning that the line that connects the trolley to the line above it. The buggy was pulled by horses and would be that which is displaced by the green machine and the trolley. The trolley, though, in this town will be replaced, as we learn later, by the bus. We meet a new man named Mr. Tridden, who offers the neighborhood children one last ride on the trolley. Doug learns that this is the last ride, and he is disgusted that the trolley will go away. 
In this way, he mirrors his grandfather, who we talked about earlier with the lawnmower. Uh, Douglas, too, likes technology up to a certain point, as he is comfortable. Uh, but as he is comfortable with things as they are, he does not want it replaced. Or the man who knows how to operate it to be replaced. Everybody likes Mr. Tritton. Bradbury is well aware of the benefits of technology, but he also wants to show that advancements in tech also come at social costs, uh, or even environmental costs. Sometimes tech emerges when it isn't asked for and pushed onto those who want uh, who don't want it, like smartphones. I don't want a smartphone, but maybe I'll have to someday. Uh, but at any rate, Mr. Tritton has planned an adventure, and he takes the trolley down a line that hasn't been used in years to a park where outdoor music was once played. We wonder, though, uh, I don't think that the text yet supplies an answer. Where did the music go? Why aren't there concerts here anymore? We see as well another cost of technological infrastructure. Once you build a trolley line, you're stuck with all the things that were built to help it get around. Imagine if something makes roads obsolete in our lifetimes. What will we do with the roads? Now, Tridden is a man who accepts change, as he readily admits that buses are faster than trolleys. And so he doesn't resist this change in the same way that the children do. At the same time, he enchants them with a story of music being played in this spot 20 years ago. We see then a meaningful exchange between the young and the old. And so we've seen that in several of the last chapters, the young interacting with the old. Bradbury asking us to try to consider what is essentially childlike, what is essentially aged, and how much of the childlike disposition ought to be carried forward um, as we mature. What does it mean to be a mature human being? Seems to be part of what the book is asking. Now, the trolley is outside the bounds of the city, a little ways into the wild, so to speak. And as it returns to town, it is said that it, quote, soared toward a town that seemed to crush the sides of the trolley with bricks and asphalt and wood, end quote. Bradbury, uh, similar to the author Jack London, wants us to see that civilization is indeed good, but that, is, <clears throat> but that it is not perfectly good and cannot be perfectly good. This is in part because we give up something by leaving the wild. We become more domesticated and less free. We are less physically strong, and we probably lie more in civilization than we would in the wild. When things are decided by contest of strength, it is harder to lie. It is much easier to lie when society depends more on speech. All this isn't meant as a condemnation of society, but just to show that while it is better than being in the wild. We have to see the trade-offs, the things that we lose by being in civilization. Okay, well, uh, I love this book. It's just so delightful. And so I look forward to talking to you about chapters 21 through 30 soon. Brian Wilson, out.